Okay. And as they head out, I am going to go ahead and ask my friend Donna, wherever she might be, there she is, if she would come up and read our passage today. Donna, everybody. I'm going to read <clears throat> Revelation 20th chapter 1 through 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated upon them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's see, did we, how far did we go in there, Donna? 15? Okay, very good. I must have blinked out for a minute. Um, very good. So, was there, was there another page? How about that? Why don't you come on back up and finish that? Okay, good. <laughs> and, and we continue. <laughs> And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magagod, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, uh, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <laughs> Perfect. Well, there was that. Uh, 
we've been in a, a series in Revelation for the past, past number of weeks, so if you are uh, new with us this morning, just know that a bunch of context is coming to understand what in the world just happened. Uh, so when I was in like fourth grade, my granddad paid me 50 bucks to cut off my rat tail. And he wasn't disgusted necessarily. Maybe other people around me were, they just didn't tell me. But he was so kind about it and just very kind of forthright. And I knew that he didn't like it, but there was something about fourth grade me just, just thought, this thing is super cool. Like, I was fishing a lot in fourth grade, and I had Clint and Garth on rotation from Kix 101.5, the local country station in Atlanta, and it just fit. It fit. It was my vibe, at least for that year. And one weekend, I was over at my grandparents' house, and my granddad very kindly and very pointedly just said, hey, how about I give you 50 bucks, and we'll cut that thing off right now? I said, 50 bucks, okay. But there was something I knew about my granddad. And this was something true of his character every moment before this and every moment thereafter up to the day of his death. I knew that he was for me. And because I knew that he was for me, because I knew that he smiled over every part of my life, even those parts that he didn't necessarily like, there was something in the freedom of that relationship where I could hear fourth grade me, one of the hardest things in that moment was this had to go. But because my granddad loved me, I could hear that and say, you know what, I agree with you. And in fact, I'll take that $50 and your <laughs> smile over me and I will happily cut this thing off. Believe it or not, I think that has some kind of bearing on this passage today. <laughs> Let's see if we can make the connection. This passage contains some of the most intense images that we have found over the past number of weeks as we've been walking through this book. And particular to Revelation 20, there has been intense debate over what some of these things mean. But whatever you might believe about the first two-thirds of what we read, what happens in verses 11 through 15 is something unignorable and something so clear and maybe so comforting, even though it may not initially seem like it. I want to contend this morning that this passage is a passage of assurance. This passage is a passage of comfort. This passage is a passage of hope. Assurance that God's intense love and his powerful security can be over our lives. And that we can know for sure, not having to guess for a minute what he thinks of us. And because of that, this might then allow us, living out of that security to live into some of the crazy things that he might call us to do, like cutting off our rat tails. So here's uh, our two points for this morning. One is Revelation 20, because Revelation 20 is about assurance, there's two primary ways that this assures us. The first, it assures us for our now. And the second is it assures us for the future. It assures us for our now, 
and assures us for the future. So first, how does Revelation 20 assure us in the right here and now experience of our lives? We've been over the past number of weeks circling through these seven themes of Revelation. And we're, we're getting closer to the end than the beginning. Some of you may be saying, praise be, uh, that we're getting close to the end of this. But we've spent the past two weeks, last week and this week, on the theme of power. If anything, Revelation, the whole book, describes God to be a God of power but a unique kind of power, a particular kind of power in the way that he wields it. And there have been seven of these throne room visions, seven of these throne room scenes. And even this number seven, as we know, is one of these images regarding sort of the completeness or the goodness. And so this being the seventh of the seven throne room scenes, we have seen all kinds of things around the throne so far. We've seen elders. We've seen creatures with all kinds of crazy horns and stuff. We've seen rainbows. We've seen lamps and fire and incense and all of this crying out, worthy, holy, glory, mighty are you, O God. You reign. You are the only one who deserves to be on the throne of the universe. And all of this so far has only been by way of image. It's been by way of John getting these visions and then responding or others around the throne seeing who this God is and then responding. Now we see God begin to act. He shifts a little bit in his throne today and begins to move and shake. And we're going to see just how mighty he is. Because this passage opens with this image of an angel Not even God himself, but an angel who has been given the authority from God to lasso Satan and to throw him into this bottomless pit for a thousand years and to raise all believers for all time to life and rule and reign with Jesus for this thousand years. Now, if there was a bullseye for the most contentious passage in all of the book of Revelation... All of these places that talk about the thousand years would be the center of the bullseye. This is one of the things that can and has divided Christians for centuries. Our hope this morning is not to divide further, but our hope is to say, what does, based on the rest of Scripture, as we've said, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture, based on the rest of it, what can we gather and garner about what is true Wherever we fall in the details, what kind of assurance can we walk out of these doors this morning? Because that's what the original hearers would have heard and felt, is a sense of comfort and assurance, and we want to try to live into their ears today. So, in this center bullseye, there are three main ways to understand what are these thousand years. When is this thousand year period that is happening? When is it that Satan is bound? When is it that all believers are resurrected? When will this final judgment happen? There's three main views, uh, and these will be helpful in understanding a lot of the book, and there's, of course, more to say on these, and you can, a cursory Google search will find way more than I'm even about to tell you, but those three main views are premillennialism, amillennialism, and post 
millennialism. Pre, ah, post. Just a brief word on each three of these. Each one of these is distinguished between or by when does the thousand years that is being described happen in relation to when does Jesus return? Those are the two things that orient the, the remainder of Revelation 20. So premillennialism, meaning Jesus returns before these thousand years take place, meaning that that's still to come in the future. It hasn't happened yet. So Jesus will come again. When he comes again, he will bind Satan for a thousand literal years. God's people will be raptured to the clouds and begin to reign with him. Then after those, those thousand years, Satan will be released, final judgment will happen, new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in. Premillennialism. Ah, mill. Ah, millennialism is that Jesus returns after this thousand years, but that millennium, that thousand year period is happening now. Not by way of a thousand literal years, but symbolizing a long period of time, a perfectly long period of time. This view says that Jesus initiated the millennium at his first coming and that all dead Christians right now in heaven are ruling and reigning and with Jesus. Jesus will return one day in the future. Satan will be released. Final battle will ensue. Final judgment will come. New heavens, new earth ushered in. That's Amil. Post-millennium. Jesus returns after, again, the thousand years. The difference being that period of a thousand years, some believe literal, some believe figurative, but there is going to be a unique period that may or may not have begun yet where there is going to be a rapid increase in the power of Christianity and its influence in the world. And this thousand-year period, whether literal or figurative, we are going to see this upward trajectory of things getting better, not worse. And that trajectory then ending with the point when Jesus returns again, Satan is released, final judgment, new heavens, new earth. Okay, there's charts and graphs and all the things. If you want to go look more into those things, I am happy for you to go do that. But just, just so you're aware that those things are out there is the main point of what I want to bring before you today. Now, to locate us for the sake of what we're trying to do today, uh, I want to make two comments. Let's let scripture again interpret what's being said here in Revelation 20. So Jesus, Luke 10, he sends out these first 72 disciples of his on mission to preach the gospel in the surrounding area. And they are wowed with the kind of power they've had. They've never had this kind of power before. And they come back to Jesus and their minds are blown. And they say, Jesus, uh, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Like we're experiencing new power as we're preaching the good news of the kingdom of God in ways that we never have before. The Jewish religion up to this point, we have never seen anything with this kind of power. And Jesus goes, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. He goes on in Matthew 28. This is right before uh, he ascends into heaven. 
Jesus says, all authority, says that word again, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples and I will be with you to the end of the age. Those things sound to me like Jesus is alluding to that Satan in some way has been constrained. There's another place where Jesus says, you can't plunder the strong man's house unless you bind him first. And then you can go in and take his stuff. And he's using that as an image to say, this strong man, Satan, has been bound and the church now, beginning at the first coming of Jesus, is starting to take Satan's stuff, starting to take back his people, starting to take back his land and make for it the beginnings, a taste, a foretaste only, but a taste nonetheless of the new world that's to come. Okay? It sounds to me like Jesus is describing a, a point in time that has already happened where Jesus, or sorry, where Satan is restrained. Secondly, every other number in the book of Revelation has been figurative. And so it would seem to me and this thousand years or this thousand number has already been used previously in an already figurative way. So because that has happened before, it would make sense to me that that would also be happening here. 10 is a number of completeness. So 10 times 10 times 10 is like really, really, really complete. Really, really, really under control. So Jesus has this under control. Jesus has Satan under his foot already, and our future is secure. These things are the things that we can know from this passage today. These are assurances. Wherever we find ourselves, pre, ah, post, you can go and read and do the study yourself to decide. Uh, there is a multitude of opinions even within our own denomination. But we can be assured of these three things. One, Jesus is on his throne. His power and his love have overthrown Satan and death and evil, and their days are numbered. No war in Israel, no vacant speaker of the house, no breaking news tomorrow that you might wake up to is going to change any of that. You can have assurance today that Jesus is on his throne. Secondly, we can have assurance that we now have the power to affect change in our world because Jesus is on his throne. Changes in your workplace, changes in your neighborhood, changes in your school, changes in yourself, changes in others around you. This world is not stagnant. It is headed in a direction, and that direction is good. And lastly, we can have assurance that we're not there yet. We can have assurance that there is plenty of brokenness still in the world, and that has not thwarted God's plans. Satan is bound, but he's not vanquished. Not yet. And so we can be realistic about the darkness that we find in ourselves and the darkness that we find in our world and trust that their days are numbered. Okay, that's assurance for our now. What about assurance as we look towards the future? The best part of Luke 10, that whole thing where the 72 disciples come back and their minds are blown, I left out the best part. Because the best part of that verse is Jesus' response to the 72. 
because they're blown away that they're like, all of this power all of a sudden. And you can almost just feel like their, you know, their pride swelling inside. Look how great of a job we're doing. I've never done anything like that in ministry. And he says these words. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is he saying? Similar, I worked at a YMCA camp uh, for the majority of my high school and college years. And they had all these awards that they would give out for things. And it would be everything from very small, like, shout-outs during staff meeting about, hey, you did the dishes really great last week, or, hey, you were doing a really great job with that kid at archery. They also had counselor of the week. They had counselor of the session. That was every three weeks. They had counselor of the summer. They even had this acclaimed The Rock Award. And it was literally a rock, like the size of this table. And it was really heavy. And it was painted on it was The Rock, in case you didn't know what that was. And it had all these Bible verses on there. And the, the image was meant to describe this is the award that is given to the person that most looks like Jesus, that most symbolizes he who is the ultimate rock. And I got like every award. I like raked in the awards. I like had one of those things at the poker tables that you like grab all the chips and scrape them back over to you. I had one of those things and I was just scraping them into this bag. I think there's still a bag somewhere in my mom's house that has all of those awards inside of it. And I even got this rock award. The staff member who most exhibits Jesus was not following Jesus. I was chasing those accolades. Those were my salvation. My works were what made me feel right. My works were what made me feel good enough. Because I assumed if I feel good about myself and I'm doing good enough that other people around me are giving me awards, that probably if God was real, he'd give me an award too. but I always had this sneaking suspicion that I wasn't actually good enough. Because why would I have chased so hard after those things if I wasn't trying to fill something inside of me? A gaping hole that needed someone to speak over my life, well done. And I was filling it with all of those trophies. But I didn't have ultimate assurance. Here's how verses 11 through 15 especially speak to our future. But even how our future and the security that we can find in knowing where we are headed can change our nows. Because verses 11 through 15 go on to describe a day where Jesus sitting on a great white throne, that is a mega throne is that word. He will sit and every book will be opened. I'm a former youth pastor, and so you get an illustration. This passage goes on to describe that every one of us, in everything that we do or say, 
in everything that is left undone or left unsaid that should be done and said is being captured in a book and that one day that book will be opened. And the God of the universe will rifle through this book. Hmm. What look do you think will be on his face? Maybe sadness? Maybe disgust? Maybe horror? And then he'll grab his notepad and cross-reference, is your name on the list? Based on how you did, based on your life, is your name on the list? Are you going to be allowed into my eternal life? kingdom. That's the picture that we find here in Revelation 20. And if your name is not found on that book because what is in your book is not worthy enough to be let in, then what is described is a lake of fire, hell, judgment. The question before us today is what is inside our book. And when you consider the things in your own life, there's really two ways that we can get in this Lamb's book of life as the Bible describes it. The first is be perfect. Be perfect like our first parents. Adam and Eve, they had the opportunity to listen to what God said and to do what God did. And if they had have followed through, then they would have had eternal life, had a perfect relationship with God for all eternity. And so the question before us is, have you loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Have you not worshipped anything else other than God, taken the Lord's name in vain, Sabbath every week, honored your father and mother, didn't murder or be angry, didn't commit adultery or lust, didn't steal, didn't lie, didn't covet, didn't cheat? That's it. That's all. Because when we weigh what is in our book with the standard that God holds before us, we can only find ourselves wanting. But for the rest of us, there's another way. Romans 3, verses 20 through 22 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Did you hear that? By what you do in yourself, in this book of your life, you will not be justified in yourself. Since through the law comes only knowledge of sin. When we see the standard that we are supposed to live up to and then reflect back on that like a mirror, we see, wow, I fall really short of that. But now this is the good news. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It no longer depends on what's inside your book. The righteousness of God is now found by faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. Because there's another book. 
And that book is the son of God who became man and lived a perfect life. Everything in his book, flawless, perfect, holy. And on the cross, he took his perfection and he laid it down. And he took your imperfection and picked it up. And now your works on the cross by faith in Jesus are placed inside of Jesus. And judgment and wrath and lake of fire is what Jesus experienced. And in the very same way, in that same moment, by faith in him, even today, your life can be infused with the righteousness of Jesus. Now, when your book is opened, what is seen inside is Jesus' works. The only way we will be able to stand before God, which, again, if there's anything clear about this passage, that much is clear. When we stand before God, we will have two options. Option one, in and of ourself, say, well, no, 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 it wasn't that bad. Or no, 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 here's what I was thinking. Or no, 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 that didn't exactly how it went. Or instead to say, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Empty, open hands of faith are the only thing that God will see and God will accept bringing our nothing to him, exactly like this baptism just described, is the only way we will be able to stand. What an experience, though. Just imagine that moment of God looking through every page of your life and all of the things that you don't even want your dog to know about. He sees. And then he looks at you and he smiles. Because ultimately what he's seeing is Christ's righteousness covering you. And then he says, well done. And he sees all the ways you've suffered. And he sees all of your pain. And he sees all the ways you've been hurt. And he sees all the things that you have sacrificed for the sake of his kingdom. And he says, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into your master's joy. Here's the final question. Christian, in what way are you still trying to fill your book with your works? In what ways today are you still hoping in your trophies to be what pleases God? Or in what ways are you trying to hide or minimize the things that are actually in here, even from yourself? What would it look like in freedom to fully be known by God and to a healthy degree other people around you? to affirm and encourage and assure you of your love by the Father. Because here's what we know. Christianity is on an upward trend. Again, make whatever you want of that based on those three mills that we talked about earlier. But Christian historian Rodney Stark said that in 150 AD, 40,000 Christians existed. By 200 AD, 
218,000 Christians existed. By 250 AD, 1.17 million Christians existed. And today, there are 2.18 billion Christians, a quarter of the world's population, says, nothing in my hands I cling, or I bring, simply to the cross, I cling. And especially in the south of the world and the east of the world, Christianity is booming. Uh, Christian historian Philip Jenkins says, by 2050, only about a fifth of the world's three billion Christians will be non-Hispanic whites. Isn't that wild? Christianity is exploding, especially in places of immense persecution, even in places today like Israel and Gaza Strip. Jesus is on his throne. Amen? He is at work. He is at work in you. He is at work in this world. And so we're going to end just by praying. Uh, We're going to pray that Jesus will bring some of the things that we can't make this happen in ourselves and we can't make this happen anywhere else. So we're going to pray for the world. We're going to pray for our nation first is what we're praying for technically this week. Uh, But we're going to spill over and pray for Myanmar, as has already been described. We're going to spill over and pray for Israel uh, because that is a need of this hour as well. And we're going to trust that Jesus is on his throne and is doing exactly what he will do with us. So let's pray. Father, we pray for our nation. Uh, We pray for the spiritual apathy and numbness that we find in ourselves and that we find in our city and that we find in our country. We pray for revival like the ones that have been recently breaking out in Asbury and in Auburn and all over. Father, we want more of that. We want that here. We want that in our lives. We want that in our homes. We want that in our church. We pray for the faithfulness of believers to speak the gospel in truth and love to a confused, apathetic, and hostile culture. Father, we pray for our college campuses across this nation uh, that historically have been great places of faith and conversion like mine. Father, I pray that you would do that same work in so many others of this next generation. And we pray for our children of our country. Father, we pray that you would protect those like Isaac this morning, uh, that they would be loved and equipped to be like arrows into this heart of darkness that still exists among us. And would you continue to bring your kingdom in even more powerful ways through them than you have for us. Father, we pray for Myanmar uh, this morning and the political upheaval and uprising in the past few years that you would calm their government Uh, and calm the persecuting of the Christians there. But we pray that that the blood of the martyrs would seed and would germinate into faith for many more, that there would not be an ability to snuff out your church. Uh, We pray that you would help to navigate uh, the church through uh, the political instability and they would be able to share Christ and live by faith and fellowship well. And Father, finally, we pray for Israel. Uh, We pray for a church in Bethlehem that has requested prayer for provision to meet the practical needs of those in the community. They're unable to deliver essential items like food and fuel, and we pray that their congregation and the surrounding community uh, would be resourced even miraculously this morning. Uh, Father, we pray for the communication between family members that have been lost or gone missing uh, 
that it would be reconnected. We pray for improved communication ability, cell phone towers, email, Instagram, all the things that connect people. Would they be up and running so that the peace of Christ could unite brothers and sisters during this time? And Father, we pray um, for those in Palestine. Uh, We pray for churches even in Palestine right now that have been infiltrated and attacked. Father, we pray uh, for your grace, your wisdom, uh, and your care for how to share the love of Jesus with a gun pointed to their head. Father, all these things, we are not powerful enough to hold together. We can barely hold ourselves together. But thank you that we are not the ultimate ones holding us. You are. And we pray in your name and your power and your glory. Amen.